Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you again uh, this Sunday morning as we gather together and as we uh, join online for worship and as we celebrate our great God and King. There is no such thing as absolute truth. My truth and and your truth are, are merely expressions of our individual human experience. There's value and there's, there, there's beauty to be found in all expressions of faith and in none. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere and that your beliefs don't infringe upon those of others. We're an advanced society that has moved beyond the old entrapments of, and dependence on theological systems and, and doctrine. There's a spark of the divine in all things. You do you. These kinds of philosophies and ideas permeate our culture and they are on display in so many different ways all around us. You know, as we look around, we hear those kinds of ideas and and, and we see the impact of them in the culture in which we live. It may be that some of us, as we gather here this morning, or as we watch from home online, maybe think to ourselves, yeah, but, well, I kind of, I think that maybe some of those statements are true. If that's the case, I am so thankful that you're with us this morning. And, and, and I really want to encourage you to make sure that you keep listening all the way through to the end, because the reality is that those kinds of statements that we are so accustomed to hearing or seeing lived out before us in our culture are in fact utterly inconsistent with biblical Christianity. Uh, They cannot in any way or sense or form be reconciled with what we find in the pages of God's inspired, authoritative, inerrant word. And unfortunately, even though they cannot be reconciled, even though they, they, they bear no resemblance to biblical Christianity, those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of philosophies have nevertheless crept in to the church across our land. And if you don't believe me, you don't have to look any further than some of the latest uh, surveys and reports and studies that have been issued by the Barna Group and others And the kinds of worldviews and the kind of beliefs that those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, those who profess to be evangelical Christians, say that they believe or that they don't believe. It's inconsistent with what the scriptures teach. Uh, The truth of the matter is that we live in a world, we live in a culture which tends to think of itself as being deeply enlightened. And it's interesting because this, this occurs in, in two seemingly opposite directions. You see, on the one hand, we think of ourselves as being a very scientific, a very learned, a very intellectual people. We understand logic. We understand reason. And, and so we see ourselves as being deeply enlightened and, and therefore things like humanism. And atheism are heralded as being wonderful accomplishments and demonstrations of our level of enlightenment. At the same time, 
Uh, we also have people who will talk about the fact that uh, we are all on a spiritual journey. And, and as, we, as we free ourselves from past things and as we seek our own definition and as we seek to experience our spirituality in a way that we can construct and find meaning from ourselves, then that is the demonstration of what it is to be wise and to be understanding and to be enlightened in our culture. But there's the rub, isn't it? What do we who are followers of Jesus Christ do in the midst of that? As we've been studying in recent weeks, this study through the book of Acts that we've been calling witness. We've been learning about the fact that the Lord Jesus himself has commissioned us as his followers to bear witness to him to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, as declared in the Scripture, and even from our, from our own testimony, how Christ himself has transformed our lives. But how do we do that in the midst of the culture in which we live? How do we witness for Christ in a culture that believes itself to be too enlightened for our message? How do we proclaim that there is one way in a world that believes that any way will do? How do we proclaim the absolute truth of God and his revealed word, uh, word to a people who, who consider themselves to have intellectually graduated beyond the antiquated ideas of Christianity? That's what we often wrestle with on a daily basis as we go into school, as we go into our workplaces, we step out into the marketplace of ideas. But while that's a challenge that we face, we are not the first people to ever face that challenge. And in fact, in, in a very real sense, the challenge that we have in the culture in which we live today is really not so very much different than where the Apostle Paul found himself when he arrived in the ancient city of Athens nearly 2,000 years ago. And it's to that that we're going to look this morning as we open God's word together, as we're reminded of the greatness of who he is, the magnificence of what he's revealed to us in his word, and how we can know and delight in him more, even as we study it together this morning. So I hope you have a copy of the scriptures with you, whether you're here or at home. I'll pull those out and join me in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and we're going to begin in verse 16. And as you make your way there, we're going to find the Apostle Paul. He and his companions have been traveling from city to city, from place to place, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And as they have proclaimed this good news of Jesus Christ to the surrounding cities, some of the people have heard the message and responded. Uh, other people have heard the message and they have mocked, and still others have been uh, 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 very violent in their opposition, in their persecution. And in fact, Paul arrives in Athens having been literally chased out of town, first in Thessalonica and then in Berea. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, where we read these words. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's his companions, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. 
And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And what we see here is that the idolatry and the supposed intellect of our culture ought to motivate us to engage rather than to retreat. You see, as Paul arrives in the ancient city of Athens, Athens was well known all over the ancient world. In fact, probably each of us at different times in our schooling have studied something about the ancient Greeks. And Athens was kind of at the heart, at the epicenter of that. It was the intellectual capital of the known world. It was from Athens that that many of the great ancient philosophers had risen up. And so we think of people like Socrates and Plato and countless others. That was was their home generations even before Paul arrived there. And so they thought of themselves as being the intellectual elite of the day. But it wasn't just a place of, uh, of intellect, of debate and of philosophy. It was a place, the birthplace of modern democracy. And so in Athens, they, pri- they prided themselves on the public gathering. They prided themselves on freedom of speech and uh, oration and their, their ability to have persuasive arguments. But it was also an intensely spiritual place. You're probably familiar with the, the, the many gods of the Greek pantheon. In fact, one ancient Roman satirist writing about Athens said, it is easier to find a god in Athens than it is a man. Because everywhere you went, there were statues and there were idols and there were shrines all over the city to this god and to that. And there were temples and and, and some of the statues were so large. One of them was so large that it was holding a spear and you could see this 40 miles away, the city was covered with these. And Paul arrives there. You know, as I've traveled to different places around the globe, seen at least a little glimpse of this when I've been in places like Vietnam or in Thailand or in Sri Lanka or Nepal and other parts of that region. And there, of course, it's not the Greek pantheon, but you see uh, various different things. You see not only uh, the Buddha, which many would be familiar and would recognize seeing, but you see all of these images of Brahma and Vishnu and Shiva and Parvati and Ganja. And in those places, you see people stopping and people making offerings to them all day long. Everywhere you turn, there are these idols. And Paul comes into the city, and that's what he sees And we're told here that he arrived, and as he was waiting for his companions, Timothy and Silas, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. You know, when Paul saw the idolatry of Athens... We learned that he was moved, and he was moved to witness, and he was moved to witness boldly, first in the synagogue and and then in the marketplace to anybody who would listen. 
And through the book of Acts, we've seen that Paul, when he moves into a new area or when he arrives in a new area, immediately goes to the synagogue to those who were of Jewish heritage and begins to witness to them. But as he goes there, he not only ministers to them, but he goes out day after day after day to talk to whoever would listen. And when we see Paul provoked in his spirit, he doesn't retreat And he doesn't lash out. Instead, he boldly engages them with the gospel. I think that it's really interesting that when he arrives there, he has this this overwhelming grief. This overwhelming sense of burden for the people of this city who are putting their trust in anything and everything. And ultimately, it is all empty and worthless and hopeless. For as intelligent as they think that they are, for as spiritually enlightened as they think they are, they are trusting in things that are of no value. Here in Huntley and over in Crystal Lake or in Lake in the Hills or up in Woodstock, we may not see a whole lot of carved idols, although there are some. But that doesn't mean that there are not still idol worshiping taking place. You see, ultimately, an idol is anything that we look to apart from God to meet the thirsts and desires of our heart. And so we live in a land, we live in a culture where, where we have political idols, where we have, uh, where we have ce- uh, celebrities who we turn into idols. We turn material items into, into idols. For some people, their job is their idol, their relationships, their children. Really, anything that takes the place of affection, anything that becomes a priority, anything that we seek to build everything else in our life around that is a sacred cow, if you like, in our, in our life, has the danger of becoming an idol, something that we set up in place of God. And Paul is burdened for the people. And as he is burdened, I think it is fascinating. His burden does not result in what we today might commonly expect to see. You see, the way that oftentimes the church uh, throughout our land tends to respond is, first of all, we fail to see all of what's going on in the culture because we would just prefer not to see it. So if at all possible, we like to close our eyes and, and, and stop our ears. And It's not really like this. It's not really that bad. Let's retreat into our holy huddles where we all look the same and think the same and agree over everything. And let's just pretend like that stuff is not really going on. And that, that's one of the responses that we often have today in the church when we see the corruption, when we see the desperation, when we see the, these people espousing these, these philosophies and these ideas that sound wise, that sound intellectual, but ultimately have no, can, can bear no weight. Uh, the second thing is when, when the culture becomes so loud that we can no longer act as if it doesn't exist, When the culture becomes so loud that we can no longer ignore it, what we tend to do then is become angry and to lash out and to be quick to condemn and and, and to think about all those people out there doing those evil, wicked things. And so what do we do? We take to social media. Uh, We rally together our group and we talk about how terrible everybody else is. 
and we villainize one another. That's not what Paul does here. He, he, he doesn't lash out. You see, one of the things that we have to understand is that spiritually lost people act like spiritually lost people. People who are pursuing all sorts of different things and yet don't know Christ get into all sorts of different things and believe all sorts of different things simply because they don't know Christ. They are groping around for meaning and for perspective. And, and, and rather than cursing the darkness, we are supposed to be shining the light. If we believe that Jesus Christ truly is the light of the world, then surely it is in the midst of the darkness that we are to carry that light. Too often... Too often we excuse ourselves either by ignoring all of what's going on in the culture or by standing back in a safe place and yelling at everybody else. But Paul goes, provoked, I believe, by the Holy Spirit who prompted him and burdened him and gave him a heart that grieved for the people that he saw as he walked around the city. And he begins to speak with anybody and everybody who will listen to him. First in the synagogue, then in the marketplace from day to day to day. And the marketplace was not only the place you went to buy your groceries, it was where life happened in ancient Athens. And anybody who would listen to him, Anybody who would listen to him, he would talk to. And what did he tell them about? He told them about Jesus. He told them about a God who loved them so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He told them about a savior who, who died in our place, who bore our sin in his body on the cross and who rose victorious to life. He told them the gospel. We see that here. Uh, but as he was there in the marketplace, again, this was the, 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 the place of intellect. This was the, the, the place of, uh, of, of wisdom, of philosophy. And so he, we are told, interacts with some Epicureans and some Stoic philosophers. And these were different groups there uh, that were, it was very easy to find in, in, in Athens because they were followers of these ancient philosophers. And so, uh, for example, you had the Epicureans and they uh, were followers of a man by the name of Epicurus. For those who are here in the sanctuary, he's the guy on the, the left-hand side there. And, and, and the Epicureans essentially... Um, uh, followed the teachings of Epicurus, and they believed that the gods were so remote, that they were so far removed, that they really took no notice and had no engagement or influence over the affairs of human beings. They emphasized uh, uh, the idea of chance. They emphasized escapism and the pursuit of enjoyment and pleasure really at any cost. And, uh, uh, so, for example, one of Epicurus' uh, uh, famous teachings or statements, death does not concern us because as long as we exist, death is not here. And once it does come, we no longer exist. And so it's kind of that whole idea of, uh, of, so enjoy yourself. Just find pleasure now. Don't worry about anything which is yet to come. Life is all about your pursuit of pleasure. Uh, the Stoics, they followed the, 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 the teaching of a man by the name of, of Zeno. 
And uh, uh, Zeno uh, uh, believed and, and taught that uh, um, there was kind of this pantheistic structure of many, many gods. But the supreme being rep- um, uh, was represented by this thing that he called the world soul. And then so followers of Zeno and followers who were Stoics, they embraced a kind of fatalism. Uh, they emphasized submission and endurance of pain. It was kind of like, you know, we just kind of endure in, the, in this life. Our, our job is just to submit to whatever happens because it's all fatalistic. What's going to happen is going, what's going to happen. And, and ultimately, we look to be sort of in harmony with nature and with reason. And so, for example, he says, man conquers the world by conquering himself. He says that the highest achievement is just kind of to, 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 to set aside everything and sort of let life happen. He says that fate is the endless chain of causation whereby things are. The reason or formula by which the world goes on. And you know what? Actually, the, the teachings of, uh, of Epicurus, the teachings of Zeno, the, the Stoics, um, we still see them. In our culture today, and people still kind of gravitate to some of these different things. But Paul, as he taught there in the marketplace, was not afraid to engage the intellectuals of the day. Because one of the things we have to understand is that Christianity bears up under every intellectual argument that can be leveled against it. And Paul was no intellectual lightweight himself. But he had no fear concern with proclaiming the truth of the gospel, even to those who we might sometimes be intimidated by because they just sound so much smarter than we do. Oh, that even here in this church, that some of us would have such a burden for what is going on in our school, in our workplace, in our cultural environment, that we would set ourselves to study and to understand and to be able to communicate even with the seemingly most intellectual people in our society. There is no excuse within the Christian faith for checking our brains at the door. The glorious thing is that the gospel of Jesus Christ not only holds its ground, but has for 2,000 years shown that it is far more sufficient, far more appealing, far more weighty than even the wisest ideas that our culture can try to throw. And so the response of these philosophers is they began to mock Paul and they said, well, he sounds like a, like a, like a babbler, uh, which was a way of uh, accusing him that, uh, uh, that, that they didn't think his ideas were as creative or as original as their ideas. Or, or maybe they didn't think that his oratory style was as impressive as, as they wanted it to be. And yet, and yet, as we keep on reading, we find ourselves in verse 19 and it says, and they... And they took a hold of him and they brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21. Now all of the, uh, the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some of them mocked, but some others said, well, we'll hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so uh, we see here that idolatry and intellect are of no excuse for ignorance of the true God who has appointed a day of judgment through the resurrected Jesus. That's essentially the message that that he proclaims to them. Uh, now, uh, after, uh, after debating and after speaking and after sharing Christ in the marketplace, we see that, that the people literally take a hold of Paul, which is interesting because the place they take him to, the Areopagus, used to be a court. In fact, if you know anything about Socrates, you'll know that, that he actually stood, on, um, he stood trial before the Areopagus and uh, was condemned to death there. By the time that Paul arrives in Athens, it's not really that anymore. It's more kind of just like a place that people go and just just exchange ideas. And, and we're told here that all that the Athenians loved to do was just sit around talking about whatever's new. It's kind of like 24-hour news channels. Um, they, they, they just, well, you know, you give your opinion and you give your perspective. Oh, well, and, and they were stimulated by these ideas, but they never really did very much about it. They are confused because, you see, what Paul is proclaiming is completely outside of their world view. They tended to think of death as being kind of the end, that there was nothing really beyond that. So the idea of a resurrection just didn't fit their worldview, or if there was something beyond that, it was just that you were being joined to the kind of the cosmic consciousness And yet Paul called the enlightened people, the intellectual elite of the day, he called them to turn to the true and living God. Notice with me that um, as he stands there, he, he speaks to them very respectfully. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every way very religious. What an understatement with all of those gods, with all of those idols spread all throughout the city. 
And, and, and then he begins to reason with them. And he says, I even found, as I walked around, I even found an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. Now, when you think of it, that really shouldn't be surprising, right? Because, I mean, if you're in a place and they've got so many gods and idols that they're bowing down to and worshiping, uh, probably every time somebody comes up with another one, they just add another statue there. And so to make sure that they're not missing anything, to make sure that all of their bases are covered, perhaps they, they had this statue there and said, well, you know, we've got all of these other gods, and, 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 and this is like to cover anything that we forgot or anything we didn't know about. Actually, also within the Greek mindset, there was this idea that there was the pantheon of gods, but somewhere above that, there was a a supreme God. There was a supreme being that was so transcendent, so set apart, that we could never even really know anything about him. And so some scholars believe that maybe this statue was in reference to that. But either way, Paul starts with where the people are. If you were with us last week, you'll notice that the, the, the sermon, if you like, that he gives here is very different than the one that we saw last week in Acts chapter 13, when he was standing before a synagogue. There, he went back to the Old Testament. He went back to the prophecies. He talked about the patriarchs. He talked about how God had been faithful to his promises. Here, he doesn't do any of that. He starts where they are. He says, I see that you're religious. What is unknown to you, I now proclaim what you consider to be the unknown God, let me tell you about him. It used to be that we lived in a, di- in a day, that we lived in a country, that we lived in an environment where, where people had some sort of basis of a Judeo-Christian understanding, that they would uh, have maybe gone to Sunday school or they at least knew some of the stories of the, uh, of the scriptures. Increasingly, that's not the case today. Some time back, I was uh, uh, on, a, on a trip, and uh, I was on a plane traveling from uh, Chiang Rai in Thailand to, to Bangkok. And on this about hour-long flight, I found myself sat next to a uh, Buddhist enlightenment master. And uh, so we got into a conversation, as you do. And I'm thinking, okay, how do I share the gospel with this guy? We are worlds apart in almost every way. And I don't know that I did a great job. But I started by talking about creation. Started by talking about the sense of design that exists in the world and even in the human body. I had to start from a perspective of talking about a a, a sense of, uh, of universal morality. And how could that possibly be the case unless there were, was a universal moral lawgiver? And so there was a sense in which in sharing the gospel, I had to start way back from where I might otherwise ordinarily start. Because Paul understood who it was he was talking to, and he, and he started from what they knew. And there are times that we encounter people, especially in our day-to-day, with all of the different philosophies and all of the different ideas. And and, and starting from uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life may not be the best starting place for everybody that we meet. Because who is God? What does it mean that he loves us? 
People don't have the same starting point that perhaps we were accustomed to. And Paul here, to the intellectual and the idolatrous of his day, lays out to them the fact that, first of all, there is a creator, God, and he is Lord of heaven and earth and everything else. Uh, That he is so great, that he is so powerful, that he is so majestic, that he is so glorious. He doesn't live in temples like all of these cheap substitute gods that you guys have all over the city. He's too big for that. He's too big for anything that you can make for him to live in. He doesn't fit inside of your box. And he says more than that, he says, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. You go out to some of your gods and you bring them food every morning. The God I'm telling you about, he doesn't need that. You go out and you bring, you, you bring these offerings and you think you've got to present this money and you've, you've got to do these rituals in order to do this, in order to bring him pleasure or in order to provide for him. My God doesn't need any of that. In fact, he is the one who provides everything that we have. He's the one who gives us life and breath and everything else. And then he goes on to saying, you know what? More than that, let me tell you about this God. He says, he is the one who determines the very times and the places where we shall live. Think about that for a moment. Let's just stop there for a second. Because some of us need to be reminded of that. That the God of heaven... The one true and living God is not dependent on you. You are utterly dependent on him. And and, and where you live right now, today, the fact that you are alive in this generation, at this time, the fact that you live in the home that you live in right now, that you work in the place you work in right now, that you go to school in the place you go to right now, all of that, all of that is because God has sovereignly determined the time and the place. That you should live. Some of us are so busy trying to find the next thing. Trying to figure out, oh, well, you know, I don't like this very much. No, God has placed you here for a purpose in this season. May not be where he has you tomorrow. But for today, what does it look like to serve him? Where you are. He knows. He sees and he's present. And Paul explains to them. Listen, God does these things. God is at work actively so that people will pay attention. So that they will see what he's doing in creation and that they will be drawn to him even though he's not far off. He's not like these gods that that, that are inaccessible. No, he's present. Yes, he's a transcendent God. He is set above, but he is an imminent God. He has drawn near and is available to all who call on him. And then he actually quotes some of their own poets. He quotes from a guy called um, Epimendes. And then he seems to quote from another one called Erastus. And he says, in him we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. And he talks about the fact that as creator God, there is a sense in which he is a father who wants to be known by his children. Being God's offspring, he says, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, the true God is too big for you to conjure him up in your own imagination. Don't bow down to idols. Don't bow down to lesser things. Don't 
put your trust in anything of your own making. Because you made it. And if you made it, it's not that good. I mean, you may be great. You may be an incredible, you may be the best craftsman of whatever you do on the face of the planet. But it's still not that good. Don't put your weight on that. I had the privilege of studying under um, Haddon Robinson, just a wonderful preacher, is in the presence of the Lord now. And I remember he once preached a sermon uh, from a passage in the Old Testament. And his, his, his central point from this passage was, do you have a God that you need to carry? Or do you have a God who carries you? And Paul is saying, don't put your hope and your trust in a God that you need to carry. Don't put your hope and your trust in something that is carved or made from your own imagine, from your own efforts, from your own image, because it will not sustain you in your place of need. But the true and living God, he's different. And this is where he comes and he brings this message around to. He says, listen. The times, this is verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man that he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. What's he saying there? He's saying, listen, your ignorance, what you think is intellect, all of this spiritual stuff that you engage in, it's ultimately empty ignorance, but you cannot use that as an excuse anymore. The problem that they had there in Athens is the problem which is still common today. People make this argument. They say, yeah, well, if God were really real and if judgment were really coming, um, yeah, well, well, wouldn't he have done something about it by now? Since he hasn't done something about it, then he must not be really real and judgment is not something I need to worry about. Don't be fooled. Paul explains to them that your former ignorance, he has overlooked. But that overlook doesn't mean he doesn't take it seriously. Do not, do not fool yourself into thinking that God is tolerant or apathetic of your disobedience. He's not. But he is gracious. And as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, he talks about the fact that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That God has shown great mercy to us in being patient. In that when we sin, he does not zap us with his wrath as we rightly deserve. But he leaves room for us to come to him in repentance and faith. And to take a hold of the provision that he has made. And Paul says, times of ignorance... The excuse of that is past. Now everyone, everywhere, needs to understand the reality of this one true God. And they need to respond to him in repentance and faith, recognizing that they have gone after cheap substitutes. And they've exchanged those for the glory of God. And we need to seek God. And God has made himself known by sending his son. And he has, he has borne our sins. He has paid our debt. He has died our death. And he has risen from the dead. And, and he warns them. And he says, this is serious. In fact, we could summarize something of his sermon here. We see God is creator. Therefore, we have value. God is sustainer. Therefore, he can meet our deepest needs. God is ruler. Therefore, he has authority over us. He is our father. Therefore, he loves us. 
and he is a judge. Therefore, our actions, our thoughts, our attitudes, they have a consequence. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be ignorant because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. What do we need to know about this? Paul proclaims to a people who thought of themselves as being the intellectual and the spiritual elite of the day. And he says, listen, what I proclaim to you is serious. And you need to respond because God himself has set a day of judgment. I don't know when that day is. But he has divinely determined that day, and it is sure. It is certain. More than that, he has not only set a day of judgment, but he has established the measure of judgment. He says he will judge the world in righteousness. In other words, his judgment will be utterly and perfectly just. But more than that, not only has he set a day, not only has he set parameters of the judgment, but he has set the judge. He has assigned the judge. And he explains here that this judge is Jesus himself, the one who has risen from the dead. And his rising from the dead is a testimony for all who see about the certainty that what God says will come about. About the authority that Jesus has to be the judge. And about the hope that we have if we turn to him. As is often the case when Paul preaches. Some of them mocked him. Others were kind of like, oh, this is uncomfortable. Tell you what, why don't you uh, head out of here and, uh, and we'll hear you again another time on this. Thanks very much. But some, some of them heard and believed. Last week, as we looked in Acts chapter 13, we saw what seemed on the surface to be a very different sermon. But you know what? The difference between what Paul preached in the synagogue and what we see him preaching here was different in method, but not in message. His message essentially was there is one true Lord and God, and he is good. That all people everywhere must repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That God's patience should never be confused with tolerance or inaction. And that judgment is coming. That it is certain and it is inescapable. Therefore, do not delay in turning to him. In the midst of the intellectual elite, in the midst of the philosophies, the religious uh, syncretism of his day, in the epicenter of all of that, Paul didn't shrink back. Because you see, the message of the gospel does not change, even though the culture around us may be changing constantly. In so many ways, this message seems unpopular. It seems countercultural. It even seems absurd in the midst of a culture that considers itself to be so enlightened. But idolatry... And intellect are of no excuse for ignorance about the one true God who has appointed a day of judgment through the resurrected Jesus. We need to understand Christianity is reasonable. 
It is logical. Its impact is historically attested. But more than that, it is true. And that those who humbly cry out to God for understanding will discover that he delights to bring true enlightenment through his Holy Spirit. An enlightenment that that causes blind eyes to be opened. An enlightenment that that causes and grants understanding to dull minds and an enlightenment through the Holy Spirit that engages even the hardest of hearts. Here's the thing. Some of us, as we gather here or at home online, some of us are so enamored by the seeming intellect and enlightenment and freedom of the philosophies of our cultural day that we have lost sight of the splendor of the gospel. Some of that's because as a church across this land, we haven't always done a great job with being enamored with the beauty of Jesus. We haven't been as bold as we ought to be of standing up and saying, no, that makes no sense. Let me tell you about the one true God. But if that's you today, I would encourage you to drink again deeply of what you find in this book. To come back to this and to weigh up all of the voices that you hear from all the different sources and come back to God's word as the standard of truth. As the lens through which you interpret the world around you. Don't allow the lens of the culture to distort your view of Scripture. But for others of us, for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, let me just remind you, we have an amazing message with which we have been entrusted. We are called to be witnesses, and we witness ultimately to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We don't do it in our own strength. We do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like the Apostle Paul did. And did you know that the very same power that was at work in him Is it working you if you're a follower of Jesus? As Paul writes to the Ephesians even more splendidly, the very same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is at work in you who believe. Why? Because we have the same Holy Spirit. So don't shrink back. Oh, that we would be a people. Oh, that we would be a church who see what's going on around us in the culture, who hear these voices and these ideas that seem from a worldly perspective, to be so enticing. And our hearts would be broken. Would be broken to such a degree that we cannot stay silent. That just like Paul, looking at all of those and thinking, these people are lost. How can I not tell them what it means to be found? Might that be the burden of our hearts? Because there is a true and living God. He is near to all who call on him. He is not a figment of anyone's making because he is so much greater and glorious. And he has made for us a way that we might know him, that we might be saved, that we might delight in him. And yes, there is coming a day of judgment. And on that day, for those who are in Christ Jesus, we will stand just as we sang. Dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless before the throne. Thanks be to God.
Would you pray with me? Lord, our God. How amazing you are. Lord, we live in a day, we live in a world, we live in a, in a community that is so enamored with the latest thing. With ideas and philosophies, some spiritualized and others supposedly wise and intellectual. But that have sought to remove you from their understanding. Would you forgive us for when we are so enamored with the culture that we lose sight of your splendor? Would you forgive us for when as your people we are so intimidated by the culture that we retreat and try to ignore what's going on? Instead, Lord, would you birth within us by your Holy Spirit a a divine burden for our neighbors, our co-workers, and our friends who don't know you? And a courage of faith that while we might not every day and every moment and every opportunity have the, the, the chance to share the whole gospel, that we, would, that we would take every opportunity that we can to help to point people one step closer to Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the greatness of who you are. We thank you that you are not a God who is far off, but you are engaged in our lives and you know and you see and you are at work in these times and places where we each live. Lord, we trust you. Lord, lead us, we pray. Lord, use us, we pray. And on that soon and coming day of judgment, thank you that through Christ we can stand. And as we stand on that day, Lord, may we do so in the knowledge of the fact that we used every moment and every opportunity as best as we knew how in the power of your spirit to let others know of the reality of that day too. To you be all praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, once again, we are so thankful that you joined us this morning. I want to uh, continue to invite those of you who are at home, uh, as you feel comfortable to do so, to to join us here on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock. Thank you for those who are here in the sanctuary. As we prepare to go, let me send you out with these words from Revelation chapter 1. It says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, And has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye on that day will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Lord, come. Even so, come. For he is the one who was and who is and who is to come. Let's go out in the knowledge of the greatness of our God and his soon and coming return. God bless you and have a wonderful week.